and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetic Society podcast with me, Dr. Katani. In this episode, we're taking a journey into the world of art and artefacts, exploring what we can learn from extracting DNA from paintings, hair, and even chewing gum, and unearthing the genetic secrets of long-dead legends like Da Vinci, Van Gogh, and Beethoven. Art forgery has been going on for centuries, as us humans apparently just love ripping people off. But this type of fraud is becoming increasingly hard to get away with, thanks to our good old friend, DNA technology. Before we delve into it, let's just quickly step back in time and learn more about the history of art forgery. The Romans apparently liked to dabble in a bit of art forgery by adding fake signatures or marks to pieces of art to insinuate they belonged to someone more famous, or passing off replicas of ancient Greek antiques. Then, in the Italian Renaissance in the 15th and 16th centuries, grandmasters would sneakily sell pieces of art produced by their apprentices, and nobody was any the wiser. Even some of the most famous artists wanted a look-in. In 1496, Michelangelo created a sculpture called Sleeping Cupid, which he treated with acidic earth to make it appear like an ancient antique. He then sold this for a high price to a dealer, who eventually found out it was a fake and demanded his money back. More recently, one of the most infamous forgers of the 20th century was Dutch artist Han van Meegeren, who turned to faking it after he failed to make it with his own work. In 1937, he created a painting called Supper at Emmaus and claimed it was by the famous artist Johannes Vermeer. To his delight, the work was admired far and wide by critics and was eventually sold to Rotterdam's Boymans Gallery. Once Van Meegeren had a taste of the fake art life, he couldn't get enough. He went on to create six more Vermeer fakes and sold them for an estimated whopping $60 million, including to the prominent Nazi Hermann Goering. The market for fraudulent art has continued to boom through to today. As an example of the scale and the money to be made, from the 1960s through to 2010, Wolfgang Beltracci and his wife Hélène fooled the art world with their forgeries of surrealist paintings, generating more than $100 million in sales. And the prestigious Nerdler Gallery in New York had to close down and settle multi-million dollar lawsuits after apparently purchasing and flogging paintings supposedly by modern artists like Jackson Pollock and Mark Rothko. The biggest problem with catching art fraud is that there's no fail-safe test to prove something is a fake. As was seen in the case of Van Meegeren, and many other times in history, even the most knowledgeable experts can be fooled by a convincing forgery. Certificates of authenticity can be fake too. And although a lot can be learned from studying the materials that are used in an artwork, there's only so much authenticators can do in terms of taking and analysing samples from a potentially priceless painting. In an attempt to fight modern-day art forgery, researchers have been developing techniques that involve using DNA to tag pieces of art. So, how does it work? Synthetic DNA, which can be made to order, is used to create a unique ID for the artwork. This is embedded into a tag, which is stuck somewhere discreet, like the back of the canvas, or even covertly, so that nobody even notices it's there. 
The DNA effectively labels the artwork without damaging it, creating a permanent connection that can be detected even if the tag is removed. Synthetic DNA is very stable, so the system should last a long time. And it would be very, very hard to recreate to put on a fake. These kinds of tags would enable art to be verified as true originals and their heritage traced forward into the future. If this was the case, then anyone purchasing a piece of art without one of these encrypted tags could safely assume it was a fake, or at least be very suspicious of it. And, as might be expected, enterprising art security firms, like the company TagSmart, are now connecting DNA labels with blockchain technology to create a permanent record of ownership. Although the tags that are currently in development use synthetic DNA, there's no reason why the same system couldn't be used to tag an artwork with the artist's own DNA if they're still alive, providing a permanent, indelible connection between artist and artwork long into the future. Obviously, this technique will only work for artworks that are already known about and authenticated. It can't help with verifying previously undiscovered masterpieces that mysteriously turn up in an attic. But there might be another way that DNA can be useful for authenticating art and other artefacts. As we explored back in episode 13 of our last series, Genetics at Your Fingertips, humans leave DNA everywhere, from our skin, saliva and hair follicles. And thanks to super-sensitive techniques like PCR, this DNA can now be extracted and sequenced. So, if you're an artist, you'll probably leave some DNA in your artworks too. There are now companies springing up that offer to try and extract DNA from hair or other biological remnants left trapped in artworks by the artist, which can be sequenced and used for verification as long as there's another sample of the artist's DNA that it can be compared with. And that leads us neatly on to our next story. Born in Italy in 1452, Leonardo da Vinci is one of the most fascinating characters in history. He was a prolific inventor, scientist and artist, responsible for outputs as varied as an early design for a helicopter and arguably one of the world's most famous paintings, the Mona Lisa. So, it's not surprising that there's an ongoing interest in collecting artefacts from his life, including his DNA. The quest to map da Vinci's DNA has been going on for some time, and in 2016, an international team of researchers, led by the J. Craig Venter Institute, began the Leonardo da Vinci DNA project in an attempt to sequence his genome. Their first goal is a kind of CSI renaissance, aiming to confirm whether human remains originally found in the chapel of Saint-Florentin at the Chateau d'Amboise, which was destroyed during the French Revolution, truly are those of the great man himself. The team scoured many of his belongings and art for traces of DNA. Hair, skin, nails, you name it, but without any luck. Then, in 2019, a lock of Leonardo da Vinci's hair was discovered in a private American collection, where it had remained hidden for centuries. If it's genuine, then this is the key piece that could unlock the puzzle of da Vinci's DNA. Firstly, they will analyse the DNA and compare it with the DNA of his presumed remains and living relatives. 
Although da Vinci is not thought to have had children himself, he had 22 half-brothers, and genealogical research shows that there are a number of known living relatives coming down the male line, including the film director Franco Zeffirelli. If the DNA checks out, it will confirm the hair and remains do indeed belong to the original Renaissance man. The researchers also want to peer into his genome to see if it can reveal any genetic clues behind his genius, or even see if they can reconstruct what he looked like through a kind of genetic photo fit. More on that technology later on. And, as you might be guessing from our first story, knowing what da Vinci's DNA looks like could be useful for authenticating his artworks and other artefacts. Right now, we're still waiting for the researchers to finish and publish their findings, so watch this space. Modern genetic genealogists are lucky that there was such a craze for keeping locks of hair from famous folk in the past, including those from legendary and prolific German composer Ludwig van Beethoven. Over his life, Beethoven wrote more than 700 pieces, ranging from emotionally complex string quartets to majestic symphonies. His incredible output is even more impressive when he realised that he experienced hearing loss from his 20s, eventually becoming completely deaf by his mid-40s. He also suffered from ill health for most of his life, most notably gastrointestinal problems, and he was thought to have died from liver damage aged just 56 in the year 1827. But was there a genetic component to any of his ailments? To find out, researchers carried out DNA analysis on eight locks of hair, all purporting to be from Beethoven, publishing their findings in the journal Current Biology in March this year. The hair samples include one known as the Hiller lock, apparently taken by the composer and pianist Ferdinand Hiller, which has already undergone various tests, indicating that Beethoven may have died from lead poisoning. The first finding was that at least two of the locks weren't from Beethoven at all, including the Hiller lock. Instead, this was shown to have come from a woman, instantly striking out all that previous research. (sighs) One lock didn't yield enough DNA for analysis, but five definitely were the real thing, providing enough DNA for comparisons with living relatives and also to explore some genetic risk factors. When scientists analysed Beethoven's genome, they found variations in two genes, PNPLA3 and HFE, that have been linked with an increased risk of liver disease. They also discovered evidence of infection with the hepatitis B virus, which affects the liver. Additionally, although Beethoven was said to have been a moderate drinker by the standards of the time, the denizens of 19th century Vienna did like a tipple, which may have exacerbated these issues and led to his ultimate demise. Although the connection with liver problems popped out, the researchers couldn't find a genetic explanation for Beethoven's hearing loss. However, their analysis only covered about two-thirds of the parts of the genome that encode proteins, and they weren't able to do the more detailed analysis that can reveal genetic rearrangements that are common in deafness, so it's likely they could have missed something there. There was a final twist in the tale to be found from comparing Beethoven's DNA with that from people alive today who can trace their ancestry back to him. Beethoven himself did not have any children, but he had two brothers who did, Karl and Johann. 
However, just as modern-day DNA testing can reveal family secrets that might otherwise stay hidden, digging into the Beethoven family tree revealed what's euphemistically known as an extra-pair paternity event. Somewhere between the mid-1500s, when Beethoven's Belgian ancestor Ert van Beethoven was around, and seven generations later, in 1770, when Beethoven was born, one of the Mrs. Beethovens had some fun on the side, resulting in a pregnancy. The researchers couldn't tell whether Beethoven himself was the product of infidelity, or if it happened in a previous generation. But this historical scandal even made it from the pages of a scientific journal into Tatler magazine. Another famous figure who's been the subject of a paternity investigation is Vincent van Gogh, with researchers using DNA testing to discover whether the Dutch painter fathered an illegitimate child by one of his models. Gordina de Groot, known as Sien, was a woman who modelled for more than 20 of van Gogh's paintings he created while living in the Dutch town of Nunen. The most famous of these is the Potato Eaters, a picture of peasants eating dinner, which he completed in the spring of 1885. Due to Sien's frequent appearance in his artworks, there were already rumours about the pair's romantic involvement, which only grew when Sien, who was unmarried, gave birth to a son, Cornelius, in October 1885. Stirring the pot further, both son and suspected father had red hair. Curiously, Van Gogh skipped town in November that year, leaving Cornelius and his mother as the target of much gossip. But were the rumours actually true? In an attempt to put this debate to bed, researchers recently analysed Y-chromosome DNA from two great-grandchildren of Sien de Groot and the great-grandson of Vincent's brother, Theo Van Gogh. As we explained in episode 2 of this series, when we looked at genetic Adam and Eve, the Y chromosome is passed on from father to son with relatively little change, so it's a useful tool for determining paternal ancestry. So if Sien's great-grandchildren were descended from Vincent, their Y chromosome DNA should match Theo's great-grandson. In 2022, the results came in. Cornelius was not Vincent's son after all. But this kind of long-distance paternity testing isn't the only thing that's been done with Van Gogh's DNA, or DNA and Van Gogh. In 2014, conceptual artist Diemut Streber and researchers at MIT created an unusual artwork, a life-size human ear grown from stem cells gathered from Van Gogh's great-great-grand-nephew and DNA extracted from a stamp supposedly licked by the artist, which is more than a little creepy. Less Weird is a teeny-tiny glowing version of Van Gogh's masterpiece Starry Night, smaller than a tenpence piece. It was created by researchers at Caltech using so-called DNA origami techniques, using folded DNA to create a complex structure holding more than 65,000 fluorescent crystals that glow with different intensities, lighting up the starry sky. While it does look very cool and was published in the journal Nature, the researchers didn't just do this for the love of art. The ability of DNA to be programmed to create intricate three-dimensional structures depending on the underlying sequence has sparked a lot of interest in using the molecule as a scaffold for tiny biosensors or even quantum computers. 
Who knows? One day we might even have DNA-powered quantum computers running AI software to generate artworks for the artists of the future. You're listening to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast. You can find out more information about this episode on our website, geneticsunzip.com, or come and say hi to us over on Twitter, at Genetics Unzip. Don't forget to register for this year's Genetics Society Summer Symposium, DNA Past, Present and Future, taking place on June the 29th in Cambridge and online. Celebrating the 70th anniversary of the description of the double helix, the symposium will include world-leading geneticists such as Professors Cecilia Lindgren and Sashanka Balasubramanian, and friend of the pod, Professor Matthew Cobb, discussing what really went down between Watson, Crick and Franklin. Advanced registration is necessary for both virtual and in-person attendance. Either head over to genetics.org.uk and look under the Events tab, or, as always, you can find the link in the show notes on our website, geneticsunzip.com. While our previous stories have involved extracting DNA from artefacts and artists from the past, we wanted to end with a couple of more recent projects bringing together DNA and art. Back in 2016, artist Paul Vanus, Professor of Art at the University of Buffalo in New York, devised an art exhibition like no other. Entitled America Project, this was an interactive biological art installation using DNA fingerprinting technology to generate the artworks. And the donors of that DNA? the visitors themselves. Upon arriving at the exhibition, visitors encounter a curious, sci-fi-looking object that is effectively a large bowl with tubes coming out of it, going down into a machine. They're then politely asked to swish saline solution in their mouths for 30 seconds and then dispatch their sample into it. Now, that is my idea of a fun night out. Next comes the public performance of science. Or is it art? Or is it both? Venus purifies the DNA from hundreds of spit samples mixed together, then generates DNA fingerprints by using PCR to amplify specific regions of the genome, separating the resulting fragments with gel electrophoresis. This common, if somewhat old-school, lab technique separates DNA fragments by size, using an electrical current to drive them through a thick slab of agarose gel. Then adding a fluorescent dye that sticks to DNA and photographing them under ultraviolet light. Each sample gives a characteristic ladder of bands, a bit like a barcode. Now here's where it gets clever. Venus planned out these PCRs meticulously to produce patterns of bands that create recognisable structures when they're run out through the gel, such as a crown or a flag, which represent power. These are the artworks for the exhibition, which are displayed as video projections of the electrophoresis gels. As well as looking pretty cool, the project has a deeper purpose, aiming to bring biotechnology out of the lab and into the public sphere, sparking conversations about genetics, identity, belonging and power in a new way. And also an opportunity to spit in public. 
At least the participants in Venus's art project knew what they were letting themselves in for. As I said, humans leave DNA everywhere, which can now be extracted and sequenced from even the smallest traces. We've previously told the story of how DNA from the back of a postage stamp was used to solve a family mystery, and why Vladimir Putin carries around his own personal Putin, so his DNA doesn't fall into enemy hands. So you might want to be careful next time you spit out your chewing gum or stub out a cigarette in a public place, in case someone tries to use it to make art without your knowledge. Dr Heather Dewey-Hagborg is an artist and biohacker whose pioneering and controversial project, Stranger Visions, attracted attention back in 2013. Rather than using a pencil or paints to create portraits, she set about scavenging the streets for things that will contain the DNA of strangers, like hair or fingernails, discarded chewing gum and cigarette butts. This may not sound glamorous, especially the bit about collecting hair from a public toilet in New York's Penn Station. But once the dirty work's done, it's on to the cool part. Genetic face modelling. After a quick crash course in molecular biology in a local lab, Dewey Hagborg used DNA extraction kits she ordered off the internet to purify DNA from these artefacts and amplify it using PCR then sent it off to a lab to sequence specific key regions of the genome related to appearance, such as information about ancestry, sex, eye colour and physical traits and features, like the distance between the eyes. She then crunched through the data with a computer programme that creates a model of what each person's face might look like. Then, to make it really weird, she used a 3D printer to create life-sized versions of these faces, which have been displayed in her exhibitions, along with a little story about the source of this stranger's DNA. So, would people coming to her exhibition have been able to recognise themselves? This kind of genetic photo-fit technology has been around for a while, and it's improving all the time as our genomic databases get bigger although I'm not sure how good it was a decade ago when Dewey Hagborg launched her exhibition. And it's still not clear exactly how well it can recreate the real-life face of a person from just their DNA today. Your DNA doesn't reveal exactly how old you are, although there are now epigenetic analysis technologies that can get us close. It can't tell if you've had any accidents, surgery, aesthetic work, weight change that might change your appearance or whether or not you're wearing a beard, glasses, makeup, or anything else that might make a difference. And of course, there's the whole ethics, privacy, and consent side of things to consider. This kind of technology is pretty controversial, especially as the ability to recreate a suspect or unknown victim's face from DNA is of great interest to law enforcement. Ten years ago, Dewey Hagborg told Smithsonian Magazine that the project came from this place of noticing that we're leaving genetic material everywhere. That, combined with the increasing accessibility to molecular biology and these techniques, means that this kind of science fiction future is here now. It's available to us today. The question really is, what are we going to do with that? Her answer has been to do more art. Since that project, Dewey Hagborg has gone on to explore the intersection of art and biology in more depth, and it's well worth taking a browse through the bio-art section of her website. There's a link in the show notes for the episode for this podcast at geneticsunzip.com, along with references for all the other stories we've talked about in this episode. 
That's all for now. After all these stories of DNA extraction and reconstruction, next time we'll be taking a deeper dive into the ethics of extracting and sequencing DNA from human remains. Is it okay to dig up Gregor Mendel and sequence his genome? Yes, that really happened last year. How far back in time is it acceptable to do this kind of research? And who gets to decide this stuff anyway? Sally LePage will be sitting down with Chiri King, Professor of Public Engagement and Genetics at the University of Leicester, who was one of the team who carried out the genetic analysis on the remains of King Richard III, to mull it all over. For more information about this podcast, including show notes, transcripts, links, references and everything else, head over to geneticsunzip.com. You can find us on Twitter, at Genetics Unzip, and please do take a moment to leave us a rating in the Spotify app or review us on Apple Podcasts. I promise it does make a difference, and it helps more people discover the show. This episode of Genetics Unzip was written and presented by me, Katani, with additional research and scripting by Holly McHugh. It's a first Create the Media production for the Genetic Society, one of the oldest learned societies dedicated to promoting research, training, teaching and public engagement in all areas of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. Our theme music is composed by Dan Pollard, our logo is designed by James Mayle, and our producers are Sally LePage and Emma Werner. Thanks for listening, and until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.